Welcome back to the Exit View Podcast. I'm Adam Cohen, joined by Henry Winkle, Hake, and Ben Rossi. Fellas, there are a lot of minor moves this week, and a couple of big moves and a couple of major announcements. Mm-hmm. Before we get into that, how are you two doing? Minor moves was not lost on me, Adam. We do have some minor league baseball to talk about today, but I'm doing well, man. I, it's it's actually my birthday today, so I'm, I'm very happy to be on the podcast talking some baseball, celebrating with you guys. Yeah, well, happy birthday, Henry. As Thank you. Perfect day from, from me, Back Sports family, everyone. Happy birthday, Henry. And also, yeah, I'm glad to be back on the podcast this week. You probably missed me the last couple of weeks. I've been out there. I've been out there covering some other sports. Right now we're in like the heart of hockey season. So I've been out there kind of busily covering hockey also for this website, The Hockey Writers. So while I've been doing that and then contributing some other stuff to Back Sports page, but I've, I could not be more excited about a lot of this baseball news a lot of interesting news here and only one and we only have one week until we actually have some like action on the field that we can actually that we can talk about that's right pitchers and catchers are reporting in just a few days and of course henry happy birthday once again and thank you so happy that you wanted to podcast on your birthday no you wouldn't want any other way so happy that you're here and then happy that you're back too i know you've been crushing it with hockey and baseball combined so you guys are definitely working hard, and that's always great to see. Hey, man, wouldn't have it any other way. This is and, this is the life we all strive for, for sure. Oh yeah, that's what it takes to be in the sports industry. And on that note, let's dive right into it. So, Justin Turner went back to the Dodgers. The Dodgers are really just bringing back the whole band back together, and then and then some. And they have a very high payroll, but let's. First start on Turner, he inked a two-year, $34 million deal to Dodgers, including a $14 million 2023 club option. And because of the signing, the Dodgers have a whopping $256 million payroll, according to Spot Trap, and will have to pay $19 million in taxes. So just on the cusp of this, guys, are the Dodgers going to be hurting themselves in the long run because of all this money they have locked up? I'm glad you prefaced with long run there because I don't think it hurts them all too much in the short term and just kind of the nature of the way the salary tax penalty works that it's pretty small tax they'll end up playing uh, this year. I think it's like less than 20 million or so dollars, but definitely in the long run, there could be some implications here when it comes time to, we look at extensions for guys like uh, maybe Clayton Kershaw, uh, Corey Seager, I know is one we talked about as well, that down the line, that's, that's going to be a lot of money. And on top of what they're already paying now, you got all that money going to Mookie, you got two very expensive years of Trevor Bauer. And it's clearly it's championship or bust for the Dodgers right now. But I do worry that they may be kind of financially hamstringing themselves in the future. Yeah, it's... It's an interesting thing. I mean, when I saw that they were re-signing initially in the offseason when they were a little short to slow sign free agents, I thought they were in some ways playing it smart. I actually did not expect to see them giving – well, first off, I didn't expect them really to for, – for, for the Bauer move. But then I also didn't exactly expect them to offer this much of a contract, $34 million to Trey Turner in particular. I mean – Justin Turner. I mean, sorry, Justin Turner. I keep calling him <laughs> – I was just I was I was just thinking about Trey Turner the shortstop because for the Nationals when we were just going over preparation yeah Justin Turner <laughs> the Dodgers third baseman I, I just I, I I think I mean he he was definitely necessary with I mean the Dodgers didn't really figure out yeah a right-handed 
bat to or they need another right-handed bat in their or so he'll be perfect for now i do think maybe 34 million dollars was awfully generous to him though though i mean he is he is he's kind of the some could argue that he is kind of you know he's not like their top player on the team he's like obviously a little bit more of a, a team staple being from like the LA area playing on them all those years becoming through big in the postseason when they need him to most. So I can, I can understand the move for now, but yeah, like you guys were saying, it's going to be interesting a few years down the line, seeing their ability to like reshine Kershaw Bellinger. I, w- I wonder how, how much they really, how much thought they're put. I mean, I wonder how much thought they're putting in, like if they, if they're prepared to, to kind of lose out, potentially lose out on those guys now. I agree with you guys. First of all, I was just surprised last week when they signed Bauer because that was totally uncharacteristic of the Dodgers. They usually go, they are near the threshold. They don't always go over it, but they don't really sign these big name players. And they send the biggest fish in the market. And then they go right once again and sign the best third baseman on the market, even though he's been a Dodgers for all those years. And yes, some would say he's deserving that type of contract, but this can really hurt them in the long run. They already have a lot of money uh, set up for next year. And I was even doing some research. So the Dodgers have 130 million in the books next season. And if you factor in Muncie and Bellinger being paid more in arbitration, they're being paid 25 million this year. It's not too bad to estimate they would be paid 35 million the next year. And other player benefits, which they have $20 million this year, and that could be about the same next year. That's around $180 million total for next season. And with that type of money, you can't sign Kershaw. You can't sign Bellinger back. or, or Bellinger being a, is arbitration here, but you can't sign Seager. And that would be really, really difficult. So it would be tough to see them just hold on to everyone unless they want to keep going over the payroll. Yeah. So um, welcome back, Henry. But anyways, I'm with the, um, yeah, I, you kind of hit it right on the nail there, Adam, like a $183 million payroll projected if for, for, for next year, if they want to go under the luxury tax, I mean, you can't really, you can't really justify keeping all those players you talked about. I mean, not to mention they re-signed Austin Barnes also. I mean, of course they got a much cheaper offer on him, but it's just really interesting. I feel like some of the areas they've addressed are not even necessarily some of the areas I thought were the areas of biggest need for them either. Like, I feel like that I, they, I haven't seen them do a lot on their bullpen this off season. Like what's up with that? Yeah, that's a fair point. And even this week, they traded a couple of guys away, such as Dylan Floro and Adam Kolarit. So their bullpen took a little bit of a hit, but I think also adding Bauer to the rotation now that he can place guys like Tony Gosselin and Dustin May into the bullpen. So maybe it's not getting hit too that hard. That is true. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think about that. That is but, a great point. I didn't mm-hmm. think about that, that, that kind of those extra starters could now be long, long-term long or, or, sorry, long relief or mid-relief bullpen guys. And I do want to apologize for my brief absence there. It's, it's probably something to do with the 40 million baseball reference pages that I have open right now as we prepare for our shortstop preview. But I'm back now and, and ready to continue talking a little baseball, a little, little Justin Turner with you guys. Well, we're certainly happy that you're back, and we obviously wouldn't want you to miss the 69th podcast on your birthday, of course. So um, we're glad that it worked out. 
And yeah, just going back to the Dodgers state of the team, it'll be interesting to see just how they can bring back everyone, bring back the band together next year because Corey Seager, he's obviously a great shortstop. Maybe they can expect to play lots to shift over there, but who's their shortstop after this year? They don't know. And he might not even resign with them. And even Kershaw said he's not sure of his future of Dodgers or baseball. He might retire after the 2021 season, which is insane to think about. I would certainly, I know a lot of people would be sad to see a great like Kershaw go, but something I do think about within that equation though, is that if you did have two positions that you had to replace, look at all the great guys who are going to be free agent shortstops next year, that maybe you could get somebody a little cheaper than Corey Seager. And now you have all this great starting pitching depth to where we, as weird as it is to say, you could replace a Clayton Kershaw, at least in theory. You have you have good enough options to where that bullpen or that starting rotation rather would still be plenty strong. Yeah, that's those are really good points you guys are making there. I mean, and also, I mean, you have a little bit their, their farm system is fairly decent too in terms of some of the young guys. So like they have they could have some potential replacements there if like they were to lose out on on some of the guys who are going to be free agents or if Kershaw was to retire. So I actually think it is a little bit, I mean, it's the Dodgers aren't maybe taking nearly as big a risk as we might see it lo- as it looks like initially, like as nearly as big of a risk for future, for like future seasons, off seasons as we might see it initially. But I do think this is like their, this is again, kind of their year now. Like they got to, they got to make something of this. Like they did last year again, this year, for sure. That could be the first, I think this is the, one of the best chances we've had in a while at the first, at a first repeat world series champion. Right about that, Ben, the last time there was a repeat champion was the Yankees in 99 and 2000. So first time Ooh. in over 20 years <laughs> that it would happen. And I think the Dodgers really need to win this year. It's World Series or bust. Because think about it. Imagine a Dodgers team without Kershaw and Seager next year, for example. They would still be a great team, but the Padres, of course, are only going to get better. The Mets are also going to try to get better. All these other great teams are going to try to get better. So the Dodgers don't win it this year. The World Series chances go down by a lot the next season. That's another great point, Adam. The Padres are right there nipping at their heels to where if you take Clayton Kershaw and Corey Seager out of the equation and you don't get another good shortstop in free agency, I could very easily. And then you not not to mention you got Fernando Tatis Jr. up with another year under his belt. could very easily see that division swinging in the Padres kind of taking the next decade or so. Oh, yeah, without that, I mean, there's a lot of other up-and-coming teams in the NL too, which are going to be ones to watch and the, the other teams in the West are kind of developing. And then just in the NL and just in the NL in general, there's, there's going to be some new ones emerging. I mean, we also, we also have the Braves who are probably going to be pretty good for a few years down the line too. I mean, not pretty good. I mean, very good with what they have for a few years down. So it, it might be, it might, is it, so it might be closing for the Dodgers. I don't know. For what it's worth, Ben, Pakoda said the Braves are only going to be pretty good. They said like 83 wins this year. It was really weird. And fourth place team. Huh. Yeah, I want to speak to the head of their stats department. That doesn't seem (laughs) right. Where do they get their analytics from? I'm really curious, though. I mean, there might be some – is there some analytic I'm missing here? (laughs) They said 85 wins for the Cubs, so I hope they're right about that. 
seems optimistic. <laughs> I can maybe see that happen. I wouldn't be too, too surprised. But I, to get that to Turner, there is another huge repercussion of his signing the Dodgers because a couple of teams are clearly looking for third base, and the Mets were also right on the list. They have J.D. Davis at third base, and Davis had an excellent 2019 season, but he wasn't that great in 2020. The Brewers, for example, have Luis Arias at third base, and he can turn out to be a decent player, but he's young, and Turner would be a major upgrade. The Blue Jays also are trying to compete with an, a loaded AL East offensive division, and they missed out on him too. So how do you guys think these teams will respond to Turner signing with the Dodgers? Do you think they'll try to add more depth pieces? Because the Dodgers are looking like the clear favorites right now. I would be more likely to think the Mets go out and get a third baseman just just strictly out of need. I mean, it is a very good lineup as it is, but I don't think it's as good as the Blue Jays. And I think the Blue Jays maybe still have more of a clear need for pitching to where I, I would be more more uh, inclined to think the Mets would go out and get a third baseman. I'll, I'll go with Henry on that one too. I think the Mets definitely are. That's one of their biggest areas of need. On If there is a real area of need on their offense, that seems to be one of the bigger ones, if not the biggest one for sure. I mean, Blue Jays, he's still got Vlad Guerrero Jr. I know his fielding's been like below average and everything, but I think but he's he's a satisfactory enough option. There's no reason for them to really go out and get another shortstop. But I think I, I definitely can see the Mets going out, maybe even trading the, their shortstop, J.D. Davis. Yeah, Davis is as part of as part as part of a deal to get another one like Chris Bryant. I even have kind of a scare. I mean, I had a scary speculation last week that they would go out and get Matt Chapman, just given the talks that the way that, uh, Sandy Alderson has been in a lot of talks with the A's organization over the years, especially because he used to work for that team. So I have to agree with Henry. I would definitely agree with Henry there that yeah, it's pro- the Mets would be the team for third baseman. Take his third baseman though. Don't take mine. <laughs> <laughs> you need your third baseman more. At this point, well, I don't Absolutely. know. The A's are A's lost a couple pieces, so they could definitely use Chapman's services as well. well at least they're a good yeah, team. Ta- I mean, I wouldn't want to take ours either. <laughs> so, I mean, he's been, we're already taking our shortstop. Everything too many pieces are being taken out. I mean, yeah. Hey, don't sleep on Gio Urshela. Come get this guy's third base. <laughs> True. I wouldn't want that to happen to the Yankees either. Who knows how Andrew Hart can do at third base if put back there? Oh God, it's been like. Two years. I haven't yeah. seen him. He was like almost rookie of the year, though. He was. Been it's a while. Kind of sad what happened to him. However, I, I of course agree with you guys. The Mets need the third baseman the most out of any of these teams. But the Brewers too. They could have capitalized here because the Cardinals, of course, went out and got Arenado a couple weeks ago. The Brewers' offense mates or breaks with Kesson here and of course Christian Yelich of all people. So they need him to see and to just have another player like Turner to hit well. That would have been huge for them and really would have helped them in the NL Central race. The Brewers apparently uh, the favorites, according to Pakoda, to win the NL Central race. Another weird Pakoda stat from, from that. We're not knowing where those numbers are coming from, but I absolutely agree, Adam. I think Justin Turner would have been a phenomenal signing for them, especially it looks like Ryan Braun isn't going to be back. I know he's not really what he used to be when he was on steroids, I might add, but... 
Justin Turner would have been a great addition to that lineup, and they they need more bats for sure. Because after Yelich and Hira, it's it's not much. It's like Colton Wong, perhaps their third best player or third best hitter, I should say. Obi Sal Garcia out there in the outfield is no slouch, but not a guy who you want to be in the conversation for the third best hitter in your lineup. So yeah, I think the definitely missed opportunity for the Brewers there. And moving on to the next part of our podcast, the Major Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Player Association announced new rules for the 2021 season. They said that seven inning double headers will happen. There'll be a runner of second base in extra innings, and there will be no DH and no expanded playoffs this year to, this year as well. So how are you guys feeling with all these rule changes about some of them staying and some of them not being implemented from the 2020 season? I'm fine with it for the most part. The one thing that did seem weird to me about this is that these rule changes came out with the health and safety protocols and they're saying uh, like seven inning doubleheader. No, actually, I don't know if that was part of it, but I do know that no DH in the NL was part of the health and safety protocols along with the runner on uh, second base and extra innings. And that don't totally understand the translation to health and safety, but I would really like to see a universal DH, and I think we will see that after the next CBA. So that's the one where I was really upset to not see it happening. And I just loved the the lineup flexibility that we saw in the NL last year. And it's going to happen eventually, but I don't know. I, I thought maybe I might miss pitchers hitting, but I, I really didn't last year. I don't think the game really missed much from that. rest of the rule changes, fine with me. I think doubleheaders makes a lot of sense, and the games probably will at some point get canceled because of COVID. I actually was out there asking why, why to some of these rule changes, like why with the, with the COVID safety, you're calling it COVID safety, but yet you're having, you're having, you're taking away the DH requiring like teams to maybe have one more guy up for pinch hitting roles of pitchers, a lot more changes in games. What makes it, what's sending you safer about not having a DH? I feel like of anything in terms of safety, it's safer to have the DH. Like that's, a big reason why they did it last year. And I've always been a big, I mean, obviously I've always been a big American league guy. So I've been a big proponent of the DH and I, I, I always like what the DHs can offer, how it gives more years to guys careers. It's always a good replacement. If you have multiple good players at a certain position or you have, or I mean, does it shows that like you, cause like you don't have to be in the same kind of dilemma with your batting order and just pitchers get to really focus on their craft more. It seems like, I mean, I don't know if that really, the last thing really affects it that much, but so I was pretty disappointed about that as well. Henry, I understand seven inning double headers though. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a must with the season, especially if they're going to do like a full 160 game season, and several double headers. It's not like back in the day when they had less games, they could do several double headers like a day Runner on second, extra innings. So that with the co- with this COVID situation, I can understand that part too because I mean that's just in terms of wanting to speed up games and playing less. So that I actually do understand with pertaining to the COVID rule. But yeah, I just but no. But of anything, no DH was like the one that I really thought would be a priority to keep, and that would be the one to do. So I'm. I'm just kind of appalled. That was one of the two they didn't keep. I mean, along with extended playoffs, which I, it's a little more understandable. So it's 
it, it's really been, I mean, it's really been appalling what's happened these past, I mean, I've been used to a lot of these surprises they've been discovering with a lot of scandals and everything that you never know what you're going to get from Major League Baseball Players Association and the union. So I'm kind of getting used to a lot of these surprises here for sure. Ben, you're asking all the right questions, and Henry, you are too. I, I really don't understand why that was included into health and safety. I can maybe see with the extra inning rule and the seven inning doubleheaders a little bit, but besides that, it's very strange. And Henry, I think you and me both owe our, some of our Ice of Vila fans a bit of apology because we're both a little bit more baseball purists, and we wanted to see the DH not happen the NL, but it was a lot of fun. We like seeing more hitting, and that was great. And as much as I love a good Bartolo Colon home run every now and again, it doesn't happen all too often. So I think the Universal DH's resounding success would have helped several teams like the Mets and Braves, for example. And frankly, it really should happen in 2022. I'm absolutely willing I'm to absolutely take my L on that. I was wrong, man. We we need to see – or we need to see pitchers not hit anymore. We need the Universal DH. It's just better for baseball, more offense, and a game that – is struggling to grow. I think we need more opportunities for home runs. As awesome as it is seeing Bartolo Colon slug one or my dude Jake Arrieta slugging a 440-foot bomb. It, it's fun here and there, but Universal DH is fun every day. So I, I think it's a no-brainer. And the other thing was, I mean, I looked at last, last season, some of the slugging statistics, it was a little bit – I mean, there were a little bit of drop. It wasn't, like, as dominant in terms of – home runs nearly as it was in 2019 when the ball was <laughs> supposedly the whole juiced ball thing where you didn't have a universal DH. So I actually don't even think universal DH is really going to like add that much more substantial offense. And anyways, but like, I mean, speaking of the ball going farther, there's our next part is the news this week. MLB is changing the physical composition of the ball. It's supposedly going to be less bouncy and it's going to, hit 375 feet, feet plus will, will apparently fall two, two feet shorter with the new way the balls are being rubbed up in the factory there in Costa Rica. Any thoughts on this big news or how this is going to impact – will this impact the power of the game this coming season? That's going to be really interesting. I think in that very report they did say there would be less home runs, which is good, but I also think it's – it's just kind of funny how MLB still fails to recognize that they did indeed juice the ball. There were, there was a team of scientists commissioned by major league baseball who literally said the ball is juiced and that the seams are inconsistent and pitchers who throw hundreds of, or really thousands of pitches during the year also said the ball was juiced and the ball felt different. So they would know the best too. And MLB still has not admitted that happened. They're like, Oh yeah, now we're changing. Now we're using more humidifiers. It just seemed very silly. Yeah, we're changing this baseball, but we have no idea how it got like this in the first place. Just just manufacturing errors or whatever. It, it it doesn't make any sense at all, Adam. But I am interested to see how the how the power is affected. It sounds like from what you said, Ben, just like a couple feet of distance difference. Doesn't sound like a whole lot, but for guys who are kind of hit those wall scraper home runs, I know DJ LeMahieu was one last year who had a really short average home run total, we could see perhaps a noticeable dip in the power numbers. Uh, I think Nicholas Castellanos has, has been a guy like that in the past. And I remember seeing like spray charts where however many of his balls didn't go out because of uh, playing in Comerica and for Detroit. But 
I think it, it'll affect certain guys, but your Pete Alonzo's, your Aaron Judge's, Giancarlo Stanton's, those guys are hitting moonshots anyways to where I think whatever kind of baseball, they're, they're going to hit it really hard, really far regardless. But I, there will be some effect for certain players for sure. I think, though, that it will kind of decrease, yeah, with the players. And it will be interesting to see because I, I was looking at I mean, Robert Adair's book, The Physics of Baseball, that long fly balls hit with balls stored under extreme humidity could fall as much as 30% short of expected distance to the ball being stored in higher humidity. So, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to believe about this study after everything you guys were just saying about the whole thing, but I can, it's definitely plausible to expect a little bit of this less power. I mean, I'm now knowing about the whole juice thing. <laughs> I still kind of feel like MLB is going about the whole three true outcomes of home runs, walks, and strikeouts the wrong way. If they really wanted the game to go back to a more traditional sense, they should ban the shift. They should have implement rules to try to help it out more. I, I don't think limiting home runs by just a little bit will stop people from trying to slud their way over the fence or limit strikeouts or limit walks. It doesn't seem like the best way to go. It seems like, all right, maybe it's a little bit of a step in the right direction, but if MLB really wants to change and really want to appeal to a lot of baseball's older fan base, which it has a lot of, they got to do something different. I totally agree, Adam. I don't think this is, is going to be any kind of drastic change away from the three true outcomes movement that we've seen over the last decade or so. That unfortunately is going to continue and baseball is going to have to do something about it. I don't necessarily know what the answer is. I think eliminating the shift would be a great start. It, I mean, it's good strategy, but it kind of just sucks to watch. So I think they're going to have to do something. Uh, quick side note about Ben's point about the humidor. Uh, I read somewhere that I think that as many as five to 10 teams in the league use them now, which I think it was only like one or two a few years ago. So it's another kind of kind of drastic change in, in today's environment. Well, actually, yeah, this year it was reported that from five teams, now, now it's doubling the amount of teams who are using it this year to to 10 teams. So it will be it will be huge to to see that for sure. I just for what MLB needs to do in terms of in terms of I mean gaining back that popularity. I think a lot of it maybe doesn't exactly come with like trying to shake up the game and things like that. I mean possibly possibly the whole thing of banning the shift is not is not something people would rule out, but even even that seems a little Seems a li little bit far fetched. I just think it comes from like the MLB agreements, better agreements between the players' union and owners, and that's kind of the next thing we're going to talk about in this MLB recent announcement that the minor leagues are being shaken up. So, re ready to dive right into that. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ben. And this was a huge, huge victory for a lot of minor league organizations. There were some that were, of course, cut. But we already knew that some leagues, such as the New York Penn League, which is now independent, and the Appalachian League, which is now part of the MLB draft. Well, that's the sad part of the story, how some minor league teams will, are no longer minor league teams. They have been downgraded. But the ones that are still intact from low A ball to triple A ball, a lot of players will get increases. There will be increases in their salary from as much as 38% to 72%, which is amazing considering how little MLB teams cared about their minor league players during the pandemic so far in 2020. So it's nice to see that's a good change of pace in 2021. 
Absolutely, man. You hear all the stories about guys that have to go out and take second jobs, uh, you know, driving Uber or something. I know that guy from the Twins a couple of years ago that, I mean, if you're a professional ball player, you really, that should be your job and that should be enough to make a decent living. And it sounds like we're moving right in, in that right direction. So happy to hear that. I know uh, kind of just increased efficiency by compartmentalizing or, or compacting. I don't know if that's the right word. Something, something along those lines. It's just more efficient. Uh, we're going to see more modern facilities. Uh, we're going to see reduced travel for player and coaches. I think that's something that's especially huge in this year, this environment with COVID, uh, kind of realigning those divisions to be more geographically efficient. And I think that's something else that's, that's good for the game and, and maybe help to build up some local rivalries and, and draw more interest into those minor league systems. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I think it was overall a pretty good compromise that, like, they're doing it because, I mean, while they are cutting, they didn't cut as many teams as I was expecting. Like a lot of those leagues, like the Pioneer League, Appalachian League, the leagues that were the New York Penn League. I mean, all, all of them that are no longer affiliated, a lot of them are still going to exist as leagues, so they'll still have those teams. It's just going to be it's just going to be shaken up a little differently. I do feel though, I mean, I kind of agree with the, with what you, the other week you had Ron Sander, Bernie Sanders speaking out against the MLB saying that the minor league slashing teams is that your, your proposal to slash the number of minor league teams has nothing to do with what is good for baseball is what you said, quote, but has everything to do with greed is what he talked about. End of quote. And 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 I I actually I actually kind of see where he's coming from with that because one of the things he did mention in that is with minor league teams being eliminated from communities, which was expected out of this. I was kind of expecting minor leaguers to like get enough pay and maybe even potentially unionize. But since they still haven't unionized, the problem it brings up the other issue that Bernie Sanders was talking about with the minor league teams. They're still not even being paid anywhere. They're still not being paid livable wages. I mean, it looks like it. Triple A players can earn like fourteen thousand dollars for a full five month season. So in some ways, a lot of these demands from like players in the community it doesn't seem like we're fully met. It just seemed like they're leaving a big piece out of the cake for the players' benefits while taking big pieces out of the community. So I still personally think minor league baseball has a really long way to go with this. And I still unfortunately think that same reality of players having to work multiple jobs. I, I do like that they're improving the travel. So I think that I think there's upgrades there at the facilities and travel. But I think I think minor league baseball needs to take that next step in unionizing before there before we can really be satisfied with the steps they're taking. Sanders has some valid arguments. He, I think he actually almost bought a minor league team once or almost like chipped in so no surprise coming from him there. And he, like I said, he has some very good points because we saw last year all these players contributed to minor league, minor leaguer salaries. Just look at what happened with David or David Price and the Dodgers organization with the Nationals players into their own organization. It would be nice to see just MLB giving like 1% of the revenue to minor league baseball and have these players have more affordable living. But I also want to mention how the Buffalo Blue Jays last year maybe had a part in this. And I know that really isn't talked about in a lot of news sources, but when the Blue Jays went to their Buffalo location where their double-E team plays, they restocked the facility, they made it a lot nicer, made it a lot more accommodating, and now all these other teams are getting similar upgrades as well. So I wonder if that is a trend that kind of happened because of last year. 
it's almost like the show that used to be on Undercover Boss, where you like go in and, and see how like terrible the working conditions are. Mm-hmm. And you're like, dang, I, I need to make some changes around here. But whatever the cause, I, I mean, I think the effect is definitely awesome to see those facilities getting an upgrade. And I do agree. I think that uh, Senator Sanders made some good points there as well. Bernie is my guy. So I'm a little bit biased there. But I mean, yeah, these guys do deserve to be treated better. And I think this is a step in the right direction. We're not all the way there yet. But I, mean, I guess we got to take it one day at a time or one season at a time and, and just try and get closer. And I think unionizing could be a step in the right direction, to Ben's point. Yeah, it's just going to that's going to come down to these talks. I know we've been talking a lot about the collective bargaining agreement, the expiration of that. And I know we're all scared of that, of that, like that whole expiration of that in 2022 and the whole potential of an MLB lockout. But I think one of the things that needs to be of anything, if there is going to be any sort of agreement, they're going to, this is going to be one of the issues I think will play a role in addressing that with the players. And I mean, I know the minor leagues aren't part of the players union, but I feel like if you include them there, maybe there could be more effective negotiations. That's only a thought there though. That honestly makes a lot of sense. And I'm honestly surprised of how much power the player association has that they don't include minor leaguers in that because of course, minor leaguers are future major league baseball players. And, I really hope it gets better for them because they really struggled throughout the pandemic. They've been struggling for a long time and as players in general, until they're free agents literally have no say in which team they go and not a lot of say in how much money they make. So more power to the players, of course. Absolutely. Something I think we can all get behind. I think we're all pretty player friendly guys here, uh, but I think that about wraps it up for our minor league. So let's take it to the big league and, and big leagues rather, sorry, and look at some of the, free agents slash trade moves that we saw uh, around the last week or so. And probably one of the bigger splashes, maybe the biggest splash, uh, longtime uh, Red Sox top prospect, Andrew Benatendi, finally giving up on him. Red Sox cutting ties, sending him out to the Royals. Uh, and the Red Sox getting prospect slash, uh, he, he'd been at the big leagues a little bit, Frenchie Cordero. Uh, guy who I think is is pretty much as good as Ben Attendi, also getting uh, a couple prospects back in that deal. Not really anybody I'd ever heard of, uh, but I want to I want to pass the mic. You guys, what were what were your impressions on the Ben Attendi deal, and anything to add on that? I thought it was interesting given seeing Ben Attendi's value. I mean, he has some good. He has definitely some of that upside value that I like as as a powerful left-handed hitting out. Fielder, but I was a little shocked that that was included in like a thing. It seemed like such a big blockbuster three-team deal when yet Ben Attendi was like the biggest name in it. And I mean, his value isn't like isn't like uh, outstandingly out of this world. So that was I, I found that to be to be off off to be one of the more inter, to be one of the most interesting three team trades I've seen for sure. I mean, I, I it's 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 hard for me to say that I, mean, I don't even really know where the Royals are on track and what, when they're going to be on track to compete again. So in some ways I'm not I'm not exa- I don't exactly understand why it was the Royals who went after Ben Attendee. But it was, but I mean, he should be an upgrade maybe for them even if, if they're, even if they're not going to be competitors this season. I will be completely frank with you two. I have no idea why this trade occurred. It makes no sense to me at all. I don't get why the Royals would want Ben and Tenney. Maybe they want to flip him. Maybe they're hoping that they're 
going to be playoff contenders sooner than expected. They could be a very, very dark horse team for all I know, because they got Mike Miner and Greg Holland and Carlos Santana, but even in a loaded AL Central, that seems hard to fathom. Why were the Mets involved? They just got Josh Winchowski, too, who looked pretty good for them. They got Khalil Lee, and yes, he did have 53 stolen bases in 2019, the minors, but they also could have been just fine with Josh Winchowski. And then for the Red Sox, sure, Franchi Cordell does have some 20 homer upside, but he also was his classic Padres player just a few years back who could barely have their on-base percentage over 300. And he might even be a fourth outfitter already on this team. So I have no idea why this trade happened. It was very random to me. Yeah, I don't think anybody really got like a clear advantage from this trade. Maybe just taking a swing on environment changes for a couple guys who definitely been attendee needed one, kind of had gone stagnant there in Boston and perhaps going to get a new chance to, to play for the Royals. Uh, not, a, not a slam dunk starter for him, but I, and I don't expect the Royals to contend this year whatsoever. They're, they're going to be bad, but I don't think that lineup is, is as terrible as it has been. I mean, you got Whit Merrifield, Jorge Soler, you got Adalberto Mondesi, who's decent. Now you add Benatendi to the mix. You've got Carlos Santana as well, who Adam mentioned. It's not a terrible lineup, but the pitching is still pretty bad, even with the addition of Minor. I think past that, past him, it's it's, it's pretty ugly. So, you know, this isn't like uh, the icing on the cake that's going to take the Royals over the top. So it, it was kind of weird to see. I will say this about Benintendi, though. I understand the Red Sox giving up on him a little bit because Benintendi, has, his speed has gone slower over the past few seasons. That's what a lot of scouts mentioned. They said that he was a below-average runner now, which is hard to believe because just a few years ago, he was a 2020 player. So that could have been one of the reasons to trade him, but he's so young. and He was also a first-round pick by the Red Sox, so to just see them give up on him so early, that was very hard to fathom. And for this level of return, too, you know, that's not like a, a slam dunk prospect package. Not that he deserved one, but I mean, Frenchy Cordero isn't necessarily going to be any better than Ben Attendee. But I mean, maybe you're banking on the environment change. But I, I thought they may have held out at least maybe one more year for Ben Attendee, see if he could have turned it around. I saw them trading Ben Attendee, but at the same time, getting that in return i thought they'd maybe get a little more and i wasn't so sure because i thought at the beginning of the offseason i did see the red sox building to compete a little more so that's the part that confused me there and a lot of people still see the red sox as a dark horse team but it's i can't see them past the blue jays the rays or the yankees <laughs> especially of that pitching staff and giving away all their players in recent years they're not really doing much to help their cause, and they're very close to the luxury tax threshold as well. They would need a lot of guys to return to 2018 production levels. And, hey, maybe Chris Sale comes back and is electric and, and Erod can turn it back on because, I mean, that lineup is still dangerous, but still you need J.D. Martinez to kind of turn back the clock there too. Uh, I know Bogarts has, has still been really good, but Devers kind of even took a step back last year too, but – I would tend to agree with you, Adam. I think it looks like fourth place may be the ceiling for Boston this year. There was another really weird trade. We alluded to it earlier, and that was the Dodgers giving away Dylan Floro to the Marlins, and they got Alex Vesia and Kyle Hurt in return. They also traded away Adam Kolarik and outfitter Cody Thomas to the A's for infielder Sheldon Noose. And no, right, kind of, wait, how do you how do you pronounce it? Actually, it's pronounced noisy. I know, really unusual. Noisy. 
Yeah. Okay. Noise. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I didn't really want to pronounce it the other way, so I'm glad that you clarified. Thank you for that. So, Sheldon Noisy. If Sheldon, if you're watching this show, I do apologize, but now we have your name correct. And they also got right-handed pitcher Gus Varland. So this was another head-scratching deal because Kolarik was excellent for the Dodgers for the past two years. And Flora was very good as well. They both played major parts on the 2020 World Series run. I guess news, or Noisy, excuse me. <laughs> he, he can be a backup infielder for, I guess, Edwin Rios. But even Rios should be able to make the major league roster and I guess Vessia could replace Tulare out of the bullpen, but it didn't. It doesn't seem like this trade was needed at all. I struggle to even really have a take on it. it. It doesn't totally really move the needle too much for me one way or another, and I don't really have much to say about it. Are we talking about? So we're talking about the one with the Marlins, or the one with, or the one with the A's <laughs> in terms of necessity? I think, I think both, honestly. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I actually think the winner – I mean, I know I'm my A's bias, but I actually think the A's were definitely actually clear winners of that. They haven't been clear winners of a lot of things this offseason, but for this, they were winners. I mean, we need – I mean, we got – Adam Kolarik's been a solid left-hander, so it's great we added a new lefty to our bullpen as we don't – as the only other one we really have set up in our bullpen right now is Jake Diekman, who's probably going to be our closer, so it's great to have another middle-inning one. And, yeah, Sheldon Noisy – was fine, but I mean that we rate now that we rate now that we acquired a new infielder in Elvis Andrews and Sheldon Sheldon Noisy was kind of just there to provide maybe some potential defensive production and some potential power, which wasn't fully shown when he was called up. I think it's I don't think it'll be interesting to see he could break out, but I don't think the team lost a lot with Noisy. So I. I actually do think it kind of benefited the A's there, and they got another left-handed hitting outfielder, Cody Thomas, which is something, which is one of our biggest needs too. And Thomas does have some power as well. I think he was a twenty-homer threat in the minors, so that's also very good for the A's. And they had a very underrated week, actually. I think even the week prior, they signed back Mike Fires, and this, and just a couple of days ago, they re-signed Yusmero Petit and got Sergio Romo. So. They're doing this in typical A's fashion, where they're just signing these low-level contracts, not high-priced deals, and re-fortifying their bullpen, which has been their strength in the past few years. The A's signing low-cost guys? They should make a movie about that. <laughs> well, until we until we win a World Series, until they actually win a World Series, there will not be a sequel, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that would be lit. I would watch Moneyball, too. Uh-huh. Honestly, I can definitely see a Moneyball two in like ten years or so. There, I'm sure the game will change a lot before that time. In the sequel, the A's just like spend stupid money. They're like the new Yankees. They just completely change course. <laughs> yep, oh, and a lot's already changed in the game. In fact, a lot of the Moneyball, a lot of the Moneyball concepts are kind of becoming a little bit outdated for the game of baseball today too. And in fact, so. Yeah, a new, a new one about new analytics that we didn't come in or something. I'll write the script. <laughs> Maybe you could also invest them too. We could, you know, pull a game stock with uh, invest A's and just give them a, a ton of money and make them a big market team and they re rewrite the script. <laughs> 
Another interesting move moving us along here. Uh, James Paxton returning home to the Mariners. Uh, an awesome reunion. And while we're talking pitcher reunions, my boy Jake Arietta returning to the Cubs on a one-year $6 million deal. I should mention as well, Paxton got one-year $8.5 million. Uh, so just looking at those two signings, do you all have one that you that stood out as better to you? I mean, I think in terms of the, the player guy, I think the Mariners – Got a got got the better player with James Paxton re-signing re him. I think he's been super underrated with his him being hampered by injuries, obviously. And I, but like in terms of, I guess the better deal. I mean, well, the Cubs got a couple thousand, so it wasn't a couple million, a couple million less than the than the Mariners. So it doesn't seem like it was that much of a difference. But I think I think the Mariners are are looking maybe actually a little better moving forward with their prospects. And now with James Paxton there, he can help reform the pitching in Seattle a little bit. So I think I, I call the Mariners, I think good winners of these deals if I were to pick one, but the Cubs got a deal. I thought got a fine deal too with Jake Arrieta. Paxton one kind of stunned me a little bit, not because he was really a former Yankee, but because the Yankees gave up so much to acquire Paxton. It wasn't, you know, the priciest of deals, but to see Paxton now Sheff Justice Sheffield in the same rotation, that one stings a little bit. It's kind of like the whole giving away Chapman to the Cubs trade and then that season afterwards, they just bring him back. So that one is a little bit hard to get on the receiving end. As for the Cubs, I think Arietta is their number five starter, even their number four starter is a nice deal. It's nice to see them have a reunion, especially since Arietta struggled with the Phillies. I'm a little surprised they would choose Arietta over Lester, though, because Lester... I feel like would be about the same amount and probably would put up better numbers at this point in his career. I think Lester actually would have been a little cheaper. If my memory serves me correctly, I think he signed two years, 5 million with the nationals or maybe one year, 5 million, but it was definitely less. I do think Arietta is, he's a little bit younger and he should have a little bit more life left in that arm, given that he was kind of a late bloomer and, really didn't get a shot with the Orioles for a while. And then until he broke through with the Cubs, that was kind of his first like extended run. So he, he's, he may be going to be 34, 35 next season, but maybe a, a 31 year old arm is, is what we're banking on there with the Arietta signing. And I was surprised that they let Lester go as well, but I'm happy to see Jake back. I, I freaking love that man with all my heart. So very great to see him in pinstripes. Could definitely be a good opportunity. I mean, maybe maybe it'll be a bounce back again. Maybe he was only meant to be in pinstripes with the Cubs in his career. Could be one of those players. I'm hoping so, Ben. Well, this reunion for the Cubs is will certainly make a lot of fans happy, especially since he brought them the World Series title. He really found his peak in Chicago and threw a couple no hitters while he was at it too. So I was there was for the great. second one in Cincinnati. I was there, man. No kidding. It oh was God. it was amazing. 16 to zero win. It was offensive fireworks and then a masterful pitching performance. It was freaking awesome. Man, I envy you so much. I've always wanted to see a no hitter firsthand, like even just a scorecard one or watch a perfect game, but you got to witness it firsthand, especially during Arietta during his peak too. It was it was insane, and I will forever love that man for what he did in that game, what he did winning two games in the World Series, the Cy Young season. He can come back and just totally suck, and I will still love Jake forever. It's it's he can do no wrong in my eyes. 
He's a Cubs legend, thick and thin. Moving on, though, another addition that happened this week was as Drupal Cabrera signed a one-year, $1.75 million deal for the Diamondbacks. Not the biggest deal, but it is interesting to note that Cabrera will likely be playing second base, and that will push Cattell Marte back to center field, which he isn't too used to playing, but he had his career year there, so perhaps that will bring more life to his bat. And the Diamondbacks kind of have a secretly good offensively-laden team with Marte, Cabrera, Christian Walker, who did great after Goldschmidt uh, was traded to the Cardinals. They have David Peralta, who, who can still be pretty surprising at times. So I'm not, I'm pretty keen on the Dynamax offense. It's not the best in the league by any margin, but it has some underrated players. Maybe get a bounce back from Eduardo Escobar, too. I know a guy who had a big 2019 campaign, kind of really sucked in 2020, but. Hey, it was 2020, man. Maybe throw it out the window. But I, I do think Astrubal Cabrera adds a, a certain element to that lineup. And Diamondbacks potentially could be a sleeper team. Really, really tough to, to get ahead in that, in that NL West. Very tough division. But they got better for sure with that signing. I like it. Yeah, I think there was nothing to really lose with that sign as far as what I see. And then next time I want to move on to just so we're moving this along in the show, Red Sox added Marwin Gonzalez, one-year, $3 million contract, as well as re- reliever Hirokazu Sawamura, if I'm saying his name right. Two years, $3 million can be can be three years, $7.6 million, $5 million if, if, if he hits bonuses and then he receives a third-year option. And now the Question comes, will the Red Sox add Jackie Bradley Jr. now? What are they going to do with or Verdugo, Renfro, Gonzalez, Cordero as outfield? They only have $4 million to spend before the threshold. So that's going to be interesting what they do. Was this necessary for them to go get Marwin Gonzalez? Should they have gone a little bigger? I think Gonzalez made sense for them just in terms of price because the Red Sox are close to the threshold. Gonzalez can play in a multitude of positions, pretty much everything except for a pitcher and catcher at this point. So I, I think it was a, a decent deal for them, but it does stop a reunion with Bradley Jr. And I, I think he's probably destined to go to the Astros at this point because the Mets have Albert Amora Jr. and Brandon Nemo in the outfield. And they also have Jonathan VR who can play some outfield too. So it seems like a true destination at this point is with the Astros. I think the Astros' current center fielder is it's like Jack Straw or Miles Straw. Miles Straw. Miles Straw. There we go. I was getting Jack Bradley probably in my mind there. I do think that would be a logical destination. And and I think the Gonzalez signing essentially shuts the door on his Boston Red Sox era, which if I was a Red Sox fan, I wouldn't be all that sad. I mean, he plays good defense and uh, – was the last remainder of that Ben Attendee bets Bradley outfield. Uh, but I don't know. Jackie Bradley Jr. has basically been like a 200 hitter for the last few years. Uh, I wouldn't be too sad to see him go, but could potentially look. He, I mean, I could, I was saying earlier in the show, environment change. That, that could matter. And why not go to an environment where they bang on the trash can and, and give you awesome video analytics to make you a better hitter? Go for it, Jackie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, it's not like the Red Sox were any better in terms of being hey. a model in that sense. Is why I just is what just kind of popped up in my head. But that's a fair point. Fair point there. But yeah, with Jackie Bradley Jr., 
I, I liked him. I just thought the only really thing I remember big from him was he did have that big hitting streak going on, like at the beginning, I think of like the 2016 season. But apart from that, I haven't seen a whole big lot of reason why the Red Sox should keep him. I think I think Marlon Gonzalez will be a fine option for them. And then in, in other news in terms of players being added that look like maybe decent options. Rays add Rich Hill, one year, $2.5 million, as well as Colin McHugh, one to one year, $1.8 million. Any thoughts on those moves? Those guys. It seems like the Rays are just trying to get through as, as many pitchers as possible. Knowing the Rays, I'm sure these two will be just fine for them. But how have the mighty have fallen? Because you look at the Yankees and Rays and where they were a year ago of brand-name pitchers in the rotation, and then they let them walk away in free agency or they let or they trade them away. So the Rays are going to get some, you know, probably some decent names from Hugh and Hill, and I, I would even vote to say that he, he will get some time starting once again, even though he's been a reliever the last few seasons. But it just seems like they're just trying to finish the game at this point. They'll figure it out. They have a good enough bullpen. But it's, I guess it's good that they're adding reinforcements. I'm kind of intrigued by the Rich Hill signing. I think he could have a little bit of gas left in the tank. I'm pretty sure he is like 40 now, but he's, he hasn't been bad the last couple of years. I actually have no idea at all what he did in 2020, but I think he was pretty good in 2019, and that was a full season. So I'll, I'll bank on that one. I think, I mean, they, need, they obviously need to – Add new supplements after some of, after a couple of their notable pitching losses this past season, in which they have with which I, I so I like how they how they added Rich Hill. I think could be was it was a good option there. And then I, I think it's also great. Speaking of reunions, I mean last week they added Chris Archer back. Maybe if Chris Archer can return to his form, he was with once with the Rays. That could be something for the team too. And then. And then next, moving on. Not, speaking of another, another p- pitching news: Seth Lugo will undergo surgery to remove a body in his elbow, and he will miss at least six weeks. Wow, this is just news to me. And so that makes me wonder: Will the Mets add a reliever such as Justin Rosenthal, Justin Wilson, or minor league? Sorry, Trevor Rose. Did I say Justin Rosenthal? Trevor Rosenthal, Justin Wilson, or more minor league relievers? I mean, this might be a little bit of a blow to the. Mets bullpen, although I think they have other pieces in their bullpen, though for sure. So I'm not sure if it's as big of a blow as, as, as kind of our document and preparation made it out to be. Any thoughts on that? Does anyone else feel like the Mets are having a strange offseason? I know it's different because of the whole Steve Cohen era, but after the Lindor trade, it seems like the Mets have almost finished second in every signing. They didn't get real Muto, but hey, they got James McCann. They didn't get Liam Hendricks, for example, but they got Trevor May. They're spending their money in a smart way. But I think at this point, I think they should try to respond to the Dodgers getting Trevor Bauer and losing out on Justin Turner. They should try to upgrade at third base. If they can get Chris Bryant, that would be helpful to them. If they can maybe get a little bit of an upgrade there, it would be nice too. If they can add a Trevor Rosenthal to the bullpen, that can only help them. Or even signing a Jake Odorizzi. I think they should add one more move and then they could call it. But I don't think their offseason should be done yet. That's a fair point, Adam. And I, I'd kind of been thinking about their offseason in the context of like how bad the Mets have been and, and transactional moves for the last decade or two to where I was like, this is such an awesome offseason for them. But they have kind of been 
placing in second and, and some of those sweepstakes. And I think they could go out and make one more final move to put the icing on the cake. I don't know if it's going to be in the bullpen. I think that bullpen is still plenty strong between Trevor May. Still got Dylan Betances, of course, uh, Edwin Diaz too, which that is kind of the silver lining of this Lugo injury for me is that I, I think hopefully we, we finally get to see Edwin Diaz take back full control of the closer role which Lugo was awesome in his own right. So, you know, I think he's certainly deserving to be in that mix when he's healthy. But, I mean, I love watching Edwin Diaz close baseball games. I know it's, it's been kind of a roller coaster the last couple of years, but I think he's got all the talent in the world. And, and he's part of the reason I'd say that they don't need to go out and add a bullpen arm necessarily. Yeah, it's going to be – it's going to – yeah, it's, in terms of what the Mets need with the bullpen arm, you kind of make a good point there, Henry, that – I mean, one bullpen loss might not deteriorate them too much. And I don't know about if they need to add starting pitching, though, either with their rotation. If they really need like a Jake Odorizzi-like guy either. I feel like maybe third base might need to be the last thing they add to put an exclamation point if I'm looking at their offseason. But even but even that, I mean, it, it, even that might not be necessary. We might just have to see how the beginning of the season plays on them. Maybe, they'll, maybe if like they're kind of – they need they notice an area of need. They might make a blockbuster trade midseason, especially because we have a full 162 game season to do so. So that's that's my only like predictions off the top of my head for the Mets. And then lastly, in terms of free agents, my A's, I mean, we re-signed finally addressing our bullpen. We re-signed Yusmero Petit, who's been who's given us the most innings out of any bullpen pitcher since we since we signed him in 2018. So he's been a great middle inning guy. And then veteran Sergio Romo, who we've signed, maybe he could potentially come back and close some games. He's going to be 38 in March, but and he's but he's continued to be able to pitch decently. He's been good at limiting contact in hitters. His ERA was north of four last year, so it wasn't the greatest. But I think I think for for, for what it was worth, the A's the A's got some good deals with with those guys, I'm glad they were able to figure something out with the bullpen, especially after losing Liam Hendricks and they, and getting some other experience. They still got some other experience there. Once again, the ace bullpen does look pretty good. And I just want to clarify my comments with the Mets before we go into our final segment. I didn't, I still think this is a great off season for them. And I think on paper, they still look very, very good. The thing is, though, they're not better than the Dodgers at this point. They might not even be better than the Padres, and they might not even be the best team in baseball. So if they want to be the best and win it all this year, then they should really consider maybe adding one more piece. They don't need a Jake Gordorizzi, but they could get a Jake Gordorizzi. They don't need a Trevor Rosenthal, but that would really push them over the edge. They don't. They may not even be the best team in the NL East either, regardless of what Pakoda says. Those Braves are still pretty good. They've got a lot of talent. I think you make a fair point, Adam, that the Mets aren't necessarily, you know, at the top looking down at this point. They they still have a little ways to go up if they want to be the, the clear team to beat in the NL. And even one of those moves may not do it, but certainly would get you closer and maybe something that pays off come playoff time. Well, now we can get into our final segment, though. We can get into the top 10 shortstop, the moment that we've all been waiting for. And let's start off right at number 10. So I picked Alberto Mondesi. So I was pretty surprised about what the depth charts placed him at. They said that he would be a 2050 player in 2021. Mm-hmm. And I don't see him hitting 20 home runs. That seems a little much for Mondesi, but the 50 steals seems in range for him. And he is 
great defensively. And I only have him this low is because there's so many talented shortstops. There's so many better hitters than him. And this guy barely is non-base percentage at 300. So that's why he's just firmly at number 10 on my list. And how wild it is to have a guy that 50 steals is in range in today's day and game, or today's day and age, I should say, where, where stolen bases are dying out almost. Uh, but yeah, I, I do like Montesi a lot. And the thing for me is he's really good at the things he's good at, which are, are stealing for the most part. And I, I should say he's pretty good at power. He, he's in the conversation at least for 20 home runs. But he is the reason I left him off my list is he is – pretty bad at some of the other aspects of the game. Adam, you mentioned OBP and just not really a great contact hitter in general. Uh, He's he's definitely got some holes in his game. I know the defense could use some work as well, but he's a very, very fun player to watch. Uh, Number 10 for me, though, was another young guy who's fun to watch. And I went with Bo Bichette, kind of an upside projection pick here. Uh, Dude had a 930 OPS in 2019, ducked down a little bit to 840 in 2020. Granted, both of those being limited seasons, even a limited 2020, what was already a limited season and that he missed some time, but batted 300 both years. Uh, Pretty good with the glove too. And and an awesome Blue Jays lineup where the counting stats are going to be amazing. I think Bo Bichette has a lot of talent and is going to have a great year alongside those other young Jays. You know what? I totally think, Feel that too, Henry. And actually, for that reason, I actually ranked him a little higher on my list for shortstop. And but for my number ten, I went with someone who's seen as a real sleeper because he's had. I mean, his stats look a little bit. I mean, his twenty nineteen. I mean, especially last year's stats look a little bit lackluster. But I'm really, I really, I really like him, Paul DeYoung. I actually think Paul DeYoung's a very underrated short. I mean, he's only played like two full seasons in the MLB so far. Well, actually, well, actually. Three, he's kind of went up and down between the MLB and minors because, I mean, look, look at if you look at his 2019 stats, if he can repeat like that, he might. Some people might think of him as like a one-hit one. His team stats were pretty impressive. If you if you look at them, he put up a excuse me, I'm going up on my baseball reference, but I liked his. I mean, 444 slugging percentage, not bad with his. With, with what he did that year. I know his batting average was really low and everything, but he also has some upside with – he also has some upside with fielding, though, plus fielding value. And he's now in the core of – he's been one of the few, like, bats the Cardinals really had the last couple of years that even really gave them that hope of competing. And, I mean, not now with Nolan Arenado, I think he's has it even better in the lineup for Paul DeYoung. So, I actually – I think Paul, so Paul DeYoung was actually my choice for number 10. Those are both excellent pits. I do love Bo Bichette. I'm, I'm glad that you went into his stats, by the way, Henry, because I wasn't too, too familiar with them, so perhaps I missed out. But it is really hard to place number 10 on the shortstop list, and Paul DeJean, uh was phenomenal for the Cardinals just a couple of years ago. Great defensive stats and can still be a league average hitter, so his war was very high just a few years ago. And those two didn't make my list per se, but I can certainly see them being number 10. And going to number nine, I put Glaber Torres. So he would be higher in my list, but he's such a bad defensive shortstop. I really hope he can improve, not only for my sake, but just because I want to see him climb the rankings as well. And he's kind of at a weird point because he had a sophomore slump, but he really increased his walk rate, but his power dips. So where will he land in 2021? Can he be a 30 homer player with a high walk rate? If so, then he can certainly climb these rankings even more. 
I went back and forth on Torres. Uh, he was just ended up just missing the cut for me, and the glove was the large reason for that. Adam, you mentioned one of the worst uh, defensive, if not the worst defensive shortstops in the game, uh, which, hey, he probably should have been a second baseman, uh, but DD left. But, yeah, the, it, was a, it was a weird year for him last year, and it's 2020, so you gotta got to consider that. But also the thing that worries about me is 2019, he had all his home runs against the Orioles, man. you got to play against other teams, Glaber. <laughs> Uh, so that that's part of why I left Torres off my list and probably because I'm just a hater. Uh, but I did show a little bit of love to a crosstown rival Chicago White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson and putting him at number nine on my list. Great uh, power, a little bit of power, I should say, and speed combo. A guy who can steal bases and hit home runs. You got to love that, right? And, and he's got a batting title under his belt. In 2019, he hit 335, followed it up by hitting 322 in the pandemic-shortened 2020 season. The glove is a little bit shaky. Otherwise, I probably would have had Tim higher up on this list. Once again, Henry, a lot of these guys you're putting lower on your list I actually pushed a little higher up on my list because I – agree with you for the same reasons. I mean, I can understand why you'd push Tim Anderson down the list, but with this, with what he's done, I mean, anchoring that Chicago, that White Sox lineup in the leadoff spot and how he's able to have that combination of like average, but also power, I think is, is a lot of fun to watch. And that's why you'll see him later on my list. But in terms of my number nine, I actually said Bo Bichette for a lot of the same reasons that, you did, Henry. I think he's starting to come, really come through as one of, as one of the more underrated young shortstops for sure. And then, in terms of, in terms of one who's been playing a little longer, I'll just get to my number eight real quick, Xander Bogarts. I just think he's been a great, consistent slugger throughout the years. Maybe not the, maybe not the best feet fielding. I don't know in terms of what he's provided down the line. I think that's kind of what had Xander Bogarts maybe lower on my list than you guys had him. But yeah, Xander Bogarts is my number eight. And then just to jump to my number seven, it's actually Tim Anderson, the one that you had Henry as your number nine. So our lists are kind of close in that sense. I'll I'll get into why I I put Bogarts a lot higher later on, but I, I can see what you mean. He is more of a power threat. And he, it was a little bit more down in 2020. So I, I see what you did there. And Henry, I am happy that you did admit a crosstown rival was ranked so highly on your list. And I had Tim Anderson as number eight, too. I really feel like after Jose Brave, the Nets' big offensive leader in this team is Tim Anderson. And yes, his bat of ball and play is still ridiculously high. It was 399 and 2019 it was 383 last year so he's due for some good regression but he still batted 322 and higher the last few years he gave me a 2020 player the only reason why he's not higher my list because i feel like dip a little bit and his defense is not the best among his comparative shortstops and it's an important position to be good at defensively too probably one of the most important maybe catcher center field you put up there too but yeah you got to be able to field hit shortstop uh And my number eight on my list, actually, I'm sorry, before I get there, one more thing to say about Tim Anderson, bat flips. You got to consider that as well. Uh, But number eight on my list, uh, the guy who I think you guys had a little bit higher rank than I did. Um, So he's been a little bit, a little awesome. He's been a little bad at times. He's kind of had an inconsistent career and that is Corey Seager, but the upside is still clear. Uh, The offense has been 
awesome. Uh, it was it was really good again last year. He batted 307 with a 943 OPS, kind of throwing that back to his awesome rookie of the year season in 2016. I know he has missed a lot of time due to injury, uh, missed almost all of 2018 with an injury, uh, but. The glove also has, has kind of been all over the place for Corey Seager, too. It's been really good in some seasons, but then it's it's been pretty far below average in some seasons as well. So inconsistency, the reason that I didn't put Corey Seager higher, but the talent is undeniable. Yeah, Corey Seager. You'll come, you'll come to. Sorry, go ahead. I think it's poor watch. Sorry, I no, go ahead, Ben. So, yeah, I'm having a little bit on my computer. Yeah, no, I I agree with you there, Henry. I mean, the consistency in it. Honestly, if, if he was a little more consistent, he might have even been close to cracking number one on my list. But I, I think Corey Seager, what's cool about him is whenever he is good, he's like great. He looks like just swinging the back great like he was in the World Series. He looks like just such a natural fielding at the shortstop position like no other player I've seen. So that's why I kind of ranked him. A little, a little higher than that. See, so you're certainly a very good player, and he's ranked higher on my list too because this World Series run also because injuries kind of derailed in the last few years. But whenever he's on the field, and he has shown health in the past too, and he's done excellent. But trucking along into my number seven pick, Henry, going to like this one. It's Javi Baez. It's El Mago, and. I know he struggled in 2020. I know a lot of Cubs hitters struggle in 2020, but he still has his 2020 potential. He's still an incredible defender. I know his on-base percentage isn't great. However, it still seems like he can really turn back the clock. And he was like a back-to-back 4-1 player, so he should be just fine. And I think number seven is a good spot to put him. I do love uh, that Javi is on the list. I don't love that he's not higher up on the list, man. Javi's awesome. I love him. He is arguably the best defending shortstop in the game. I'll get into him a little bit more further down in my list. Uh, but number uh, seven for me was actually Carlos Correa, the one of the disgraced Astros sluggers. Uh, and part of the reason I have him this low, uh, his stats are, are amazing, kind of year after year. Former number one pick in the draft, but did kind of have a low and uh, an off 2020 season, I should say, which again, short season, it's weird, hard to hold it against him too much, but the slugging percentage was was pretty, pretty ugly for Correa in 2020. So it makes you wonder if, if that cheating played a factor or the lack of cheating rather was 383 in 2020 down from a career 480 mark, which small sample size, but Still, great, amazing love, amazing defense. That's undeniable. And the offense, offensive track record is, is pretty freaking awesome, too. So, Carlos Correa, you really can't go wrong with any of these guys. Shortstop is a very strong position, I want to add. So, like, we lost Ben there for a second. You did mention his number seven pick was Tim Anderson before. And, yeah, I actually am very glad that you mentioned Carlos Correa. I, I think I forgot him to be honest on my list which is a little bit sad because he's very good shortstop but if i had to leave him on the off the list because he's has an inconsistent track record and he's very injury prone i know the astros are trying to look into an extension with him but he's a tough guy to give an extension towards because he's been injured and he's had inconsistent performances but he's also shown flashes of being the best shortstop in the game so if i had to do this again he would certainly belong on my list but just going along going to number six, I put Trey Turner. And honestly, here's another guy that can be 
the best shortstop in the game. 335 batting average in 2020. Turner also put, uh, to really put it together too. I'm really hoping he puts together a 2040 season, a 300 batting average, and he's also can be good at defense sometimes. So Turner's a safe number six pick, but I wouldn't be surprised if he could move higher by the end of the year. And I am right there with you, man. I have Trey Turner at six as well for pretty much all the same reasons. I love the power speed. He's he's not Alberto Montesi in terms of speed, but he is a lot safer in batting average. Was, yeah, we batted like 330 last year, and the power was, was a major uptick for Turner last year too. He looked like a guy who could be a 30-30, maybe even dream of a 40-40 season. He doesn't have quite that much power, but – Hey, you juice the balls back up and, and maybe juice Trey Turner up a little bit and he could be a 40-40 guy. So maybe uh, maybe the upside is there and, and he is hitting for a little bit more power. He's awesome. Uh, the glove is, is more shaky than you think it would be for a guy that athletic, but enough skills on offense to where I feel good about putting him at number six. And Ben, you're back just in time for your number six. Yep. And as, as, much, as a miracle as it is that I got back in here into the broadcast, it's the same miracle that I believe we settled. All of us settled on the same number six. I, too, picked Trey Turner number six. Same reasons. I mean, he's got that rare combination of, like, power and speed around the base paths. It's just the kind of – he's just the kind of guy who frustrates opponents on all levels. He, seem, he just seems like one of the hardest guys to get out with that combination for some reason. And, guys, can I just say – Trey Turner is so fast. He is so, so fast. He gets down the line for a right hand hitter in less than four seconds. I think even less than three and a half seconds. His speed is ridiculous. I think he was on the Royals, a team that runs a lot. He could probably steal 60 or 70 bases, but it's the Nationals. It's also a different type of game than it was 10 years ago. So he's just a fun player. Then moving on to number five, I have Corey Singer in. I just want to remind everyone how good this guy was. He won Rookie of the Year. He won NLCS MVP, won World Series MVP. He was a bat-to-bat six-war player from 2016 to 2017. He's so good. The, the one thing I will keep him down for is that I don't know if he has 30 homer pop, and that's going to be important because I think there's a lot of shortstops of 30 homer pop, and it could be because he lives, he plays in Chavez Ravine, but I think if he gets to that threshold, that'd be great because there's a lot of good shortstops out there, and there's a lot of good shortstops, you know, 25-plus home runs. A lot of good shortstops can have a near high batting average and be good defensively. So that's why he's pretty much in the middle for me. That's a good point, Adam, considering not only the context of the position, but just the context of baseball as a whole, where it seems like everybody is hitting 30 home runs these days. And Corey Seager has maybe not shown quite that much power, but still plenty of upside, as you mentioned, in the back-to-back six-war seasons, or perhaps not back-to-back, but at least two of them at some point. Um but a guy who is a consistent performer on offense, my number six, Ben, you mentioned him a little bit earlier on your list. I got Xander Bogarts. He kind of fits in that Corey Seager mold too, and that he's not a guy who, who's really flashed 30 homer power other than doing it one time in 2019. Powers were, the homers were still up in 2020, hitting 11 over 60 games. So I guess that would prorate out to about a 30 home run pace. So Maybe getting a little bit more power in Xander Bogart's bat and not really losing any average either. Still sticking right around 300. Off, awesome offensive player. And the glove is a little bit shaky. I know I keep using that as my reason to dock that guys down a little bit, but it's an important uh, position defensively. So, I mean, if you're playing at least close to league average defense, which I believe, I believe Bogart's 
does. Never mind. I'm on his baseball reference page. It's pretty well below league average. Looking at his his defensive run saved, that's it's pretty bad. So maybe I should have had him a couple spots lower. Well, yeah, the the, the low average shorts. That's actually my reason for why I had him kind of lower there is for that reason. But like you'll you'll like my number five though, Henry, the one that you wanted higher on abs list. I put him at number five on your list. I hope that's enough for you. <laughs> And and I I mean and just with I I've really followed Bobby Baez the past couple of years but like his, his I I'm just looking at his athleticism and stats like he's really stellar and I, for a while I thought he was more of a second baseman and I, and he was obviously the best there but now seeing him at shortstop makes me really think that he's he's actually one of I think. He's one of the great, like, premier guys, both on the fielding side and on the hitting side of the ball. But then my number four one, which you might think is was ranked a little higher, was – I think you guys ranked higher, a little higher, was Trevor Story. I mean, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the story he brings to the Rocky Mountains. So fun to watch hit. <laughs> and the reason why he's not, 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 like, at number four or two for me is because of the fact that – I, I, I look at Adam, you've mentioned the course field effect in like some of our past telecasts. And I looked into that a little bit with Trevor story. I mean, his batting average on the road is only 250, but, but I do think, I mean, he can regular, he can do everything. He doesn't just hit for power, obviously. So he is still overall a great shortstop, but just seeing his Robert, seeing that he plays at course, he was ranked a little lower for me than he maybe was for you guys. That was my number four. I am happy that you put in the course field effect. I do remember that about Trevor Story, and perhaps considering that I put him a little bit lower. However, he has been a couple consistent in the last few years, so I'll, I'll I'll get more into that when we when we go higher up. But my number four pick is Xander Bogarts, actually, and this is a guy who did benefit, of course, from a, a very fearsome Red Sox lineup, and as recently as 2019. However, he's had a 130 weighted runs created plus for the last three seasons, and I know that he gets a bad rep defensively by baseball reference. I looked at fan graphs, which has him rated highly, actually. So that's pretty hilarious. They only had him as a defense, bad defensive shortstop just one season of his career. So I don't know why the metrics are so different there, but let's say he's about an average shortstop, perhaps find a middle ground. And even with that, his offensive potential is still very high. And I would still say he's still in that Corey Seager area. That makes me feel better about ranking him fifth then, Adam. Thank you for, for bringing fan graphs into the equation. That is, that is weird that the defensive metrics would disagree on him there, but yeah, probably good I, idea to find a middle ground between those two numbers. Number four for me was Javier Baez. We've, we've talked about him a good bit already. I love the glove. He's He's got the fastest hands in baseball, makes some incredible tags. He just is pretty fun to watch all around. Very fun to watch, I should say. They don't put you on the cover of MLB The Show for no reason, as we'll see once we get a little bit higher up on this list with another uh, cover athlete. But Javi is amazing defensively, great base runner, uh, and usually a pretty good hitter. I know he was he was awful in 2020, but a couple years before that, he was amazing. He's got power, and he is, he is very much a free swinger, so that does limit his on-base percentage potential. But when he is on, he is on, and he is a lot of fun to watch, and he can hit to all fields. I love me some Javi Baez, and I'm very much hoping for a bounce-back 2021 campaign. 
I love in that energy and hype. I mean, he brings that same energy and hype, like you were mentioning as a free swinger and everything. I didn't, I, I kind of forgot about that quality about him and didn't really see that because you watched him a lot more than me, Henry. So that was a good point you made with Javier Baez. So that's that also deserves high ranking there. And then my number three is one guy who just has an explosive, just seems to have explosive fluid power. I think. I know we were saying that the Mets offseason is a little bit mixed, but they, but they did make a great move in the offseason. I think it was a great move they made by getting Francisco Lindor, also a great fielder. He's my number three. Ben, we must have the same thought process because Lindor is my number three as well. I really want to put him at number one. I really do. I think if you even asked me that a year ago, he'd be number one, but his offense potential has gone down a little bit. He's been a bit injury prone and he's also going to be a new place. I think he's going to love the Mets though. I think he's going to like it a lot more than Cleveland <laughs> in the last year. So I would not be surprised if he claims number one ranking by the end of the year, even though there is some stiff competition. I love Francisco Lindor too. I mean, he, he's in my top three. I can't argue against him too much. And it, it was a weird 2020 season for him. We see that OPS dip quite a bit from his career norms. And we'll see how he adjusts to the new environment, but I think he's going to love having that New York supporting cast around him in the lineup. Certainly an improved lineup from Cleveland. Uh, but number three for me, a perhaps controversial pick, seeing as you all have him a tad bit higher up on the list. It is that cover athlete I was alluding to in Fernando Tatis Jr. And look, he is, he is obviously amazing. There is no doubt about it. He's got all the talent in the world. The thing for me is he just hasn't yet played a full 162 games, so I'm not quite ready to crown him as the best shortstop in the game. It's only been 143 games for Tatis. Granted, they've been amazing games. He's got a career 956 OPS across those games. He's batting 301. He's got 39 home runs in those games. So, I mean, he looks amazing. Uh, one drawback I will say yeah. against him is he kind of has a reputation as like an elite, amazing defender. And he is on certain plays. He makes amazing flashy plays, but I think he struggles a little bit with the routine stuff. And as a result, he's a lot closer to a league average defender at the position than a lot of people would realize. Interesting. Interesting there, Henry, that, that you, pointed out about Fernando Tatis Jr. I think, I mean, you're going to see him higher on my list, but I think what's going to come up to be my biggest, my biggest issue with him is, I mean, the fact that there's been some, there was a little bit of a downfall, like after he was being hyped last season, I saw a little bit of a downfall there in some of his stats, but I, but I don't think there's re really a whole lot of <laughs> issue with Fernando Tatis Jr. there. And you might be right about he might could be. I mean, he, he, he looks a little more great of a fielder because of he might be a little bit overrated in a fielder because of his stellar plays. But I but for what he's shown so far, I just cannot keep him away from being atop my list for sure. And then coming in at number two was a player that you guys had ranked really low, and I still think is one of the Best shortstop showing great exit velocity and all around def and all around defense and and what and, and when he's good like I said when he's good he's great and like it, him coming through big in the World Series for the Dodgers kind of I made is where he made a name for himself but I really like Corey Seager as my number two pick I know you ranked him a lot lower but I think 
he's just stellar all around and he's improved in his exit velocity. He's, I think he did say, yeah, I was looking somewhere. It's looked like he brought his strikeout total down a little bit. So he seems to be like improving going forward. So I really like Corey Seager as high as number, I rank Corey Seager as high as number two, much to the shock of some. Honestly, I love it. I think you guys have some great pits here. I like that you put Tatis a little bit lower just because he hasn't had the full year, Henry. And I also like the fact that Corey Seager's ranked so highly because he was just such a good player a couple of years ago and even showed that in the playoffs this year too. So those are some great pits. My number two, and this guy can easily be number one, is Trevor Story. I know there's a course field effect. I understand that he's a different player on the road than he is at home. But he seems like a sure bet pretty much more than anyone else besides Tatis Jr. to be a 30-30 player. And he's had back-to-back, I believe, five more seasons or so, and or around that margin. And he may have reached his ceiling, though. That's the only reason why he's not number one. But a 30-30 season with a 900-plus OPS, that deserves to be number two in my ranking. I agree with you 100%, Adam. I love me some Trevor Story. Uh, I'm not going to name him as my number two here, so that should tell you how much I like Trevor Story. I didn't leave him off my list, I'll tell you that much, but... It's not only that he, he gets to that level, it's that he's so consistently doing it. He's, he's pretty much a lock for 30-30. Maybe, I mean, maybe the steals are a little short, but certainly 30 home runs and uh, 300 batting average, which he wasn't really a batting average guy early in his career. He's, he's really reinvented himself and gotten a lot stronger in that regard. So I love me some Trevor Story as well. Uh, number two for me was actually Francisco Lindor. I know we, we covered him pretty extensively uh, so far. Very excited to see what he does with the Mets. Stellar, stellar defensive shortstop, which really helps uh, an infield that was pretty shaky on defense last year. And, I mean, still could be shaky if they roll with J.D. Davis at third base, but he helps a lot. And especially for a guy like Marcus Stroman, who gets a ton of ground balls, I think that'll be big, having Lindor up the middle there. And I think the bat can rebound a little bit to more of what it's been historically. He's only going to be 27 next year. So love me some Frankie Lindor. Sorry, love, yeah, Frank. You gotta love you some Frankie Lindor for this season, too. I mean, I mean, I, I'm in total agreement. And then coming in for me, of course, at number one would have to be like I said before, Fernando Tatis Jr. Just he brings so much great. He just brings so so much great power with his swing and just his ability to always. Bring all that, like I know, I know you know. I love those players who bring a lot of great energy. Well, he does it like no one else in the game, and just being the core of that Padres lineup. I really, I really think. And I, I thought, I thought going into the season, I wasn't, I wasn't so sure about Fernando Tatis Jr. because I thought that I wasn't sure if like he'd live up to like a lot of that hype. But like he's, I mean, if you just look at his baseball reference page, it tells the whole story of him of why he was my top shortstop at the pit of why he was my top shortstop. I mean, he's so I'm just pulling up this stat here. I mean, his, his game power projected to be above average. I mean, he could hit close to average. He has a lot of his own raw power and speed too. And that's not something you see in, every player so he was almost like close to a no doubter for me for sure but i totally understand the trevor story pick two with the recent stats kind of speak for themselves in that sense but Fernando tatis jr tops out my list of the top 10 
he's my number one as well. And I was at first, of course, surprised that Henry didn't have him placed higher, but he does give valid reasoning. So I will give you some credit there. However, given a couple of years and all we're going to be talking about, we will still talk about Trout, of course, but the a debate will not only be Soto and Acuna, it'll be Soto, Acuna, and Tati Jr. They're all these young players. They're so great for the game. And really, Tatis Jr. almost single-handedly brought the NL West ri- rivalry between him and the Do- him, the Padres, and the Dodgers. So that's just so much fun to watch. And I know he's only played 143 games, Henry, but that's close to a full season. He accumulated 6.5 F4 in that time, nearly a 40-40 player as well. So he's tremendous, and he's number one for me. I know he's still young, still needs to show it over a full year, but he has a lot of talent. I completely agree. He's amazing, and the sky's the limit. And, hey, I mean, I'm ranking a guy who's who's played less than a full season as the third best shortstop in baseball. I feel like that, that's still pretty high up. But I, I like that you're arguing, too, that what he means not only to the, you know, with his own individual stats, what he could mean to the game. He, he's already a candidate for the face of the game. You, you put him on the video game after less than 162 games and, and bringing that rivalry back. I, I love Fernando Tatis. And, he just oozes upside and oozes talent. He's, he's swaggy. He's fun to watch. He, he's great for the game. And he's going to be a star for years and years to come. I just, in the end, I wanted to take the track record of a guy like Trevor Story, who's been doing it now for like five years, pretty consistently awesome. Uh, he had one rough year in 2017. But other than that, he, he's been a surefire stud. And the la- I know we've talked about him a lot, too. The last thing I want to mention about Trevor Story is that with those home road splits, it's good to remember, too, that the course field effect kind of hurts you on the road. Difficult to adjust when you're leaving the altitude or altitude. I don't know why I pronounced that weird. But that's not to say that Trevor Story would, would necessarily be a 250 hitter if he played full time out of course field, which, by the way, we may see if the Rockies continue their dumpster fire and move him. I suspect he would maybe be more of like a 270, 275 bat if he was full time outside of course field, but still all that power, all that speed, and great defense. So I think he could still be in the conversation for number one, but if he wasn't playing in Coors Field, I would be more likely to put either Tatis or Lindor ahead of him. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a good point you make about adjusting to the altitude, though. But in some ways, I mean, it's, I'd say it's overall easier. It's harder that he plays in the altitude. I mean, it's, hard, it's easy on his bat, but it's harder in terms of everything else with conditioning and all that, like any other athletes who are not playing baseball. And that, well, I guess with the exception of football quarterbacks, because they can throw a little farther in altitude. But like a lot of other athletes who have to play in this altitude, I mean, it's tough. There's a reason why like boxers and like a lot of these other fighting athletes actually – go to Colorado to train but and and but yeah I I totally agree that he's that he's proven he can do more than just the he's proven he can do almost everything he's just been great almost every season as you said except except for like 2017 but I'm gonna but so yeah he in some ways he might have he could have and maybe if I didn't look into the course field effect as much, he would have been closer on my list. But I think, def- I think definitely. I mean, being the best at position like shortstop, where you're, where, where it's like almost where you're almost like the field general when you're when you're fielding. That's just huge, and to be able to hit at that position, that's not something we've seen in a while. And now I see all these great shortstop powers. So this was a fun list to do, as you guys were saying before, and it should be. Fun to see what the shortstops can bring to the game in the future. Of course, and it'll be a lot of fun to see what next year's top 10 shortstop list 
I'm sure it'll be a little bit different, but I'm already glad of how variant our shortstop list is because there's so many great, talented premier positions to choose from. Next week, we'll do the top 10 second baseman, and that Ugh. pretty much wraps up our show. That will be a lot be less fun. Than, <laughs> it won't be as fun. It'll be a lot less fun than shortstop. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. We understand it was a long episode. There's a lot to cover. And until next time, this is the Ice and Viola podcast. <laughs>